I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. You'll need a Bible as we look at the book of Jonah, so these brothers have some. As they make their way to the back, just get their attention if you need a Bible. And they'll get one of those to you. Keep it. It's our gift to you. Bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Today, Jonah chapter 2. Our circumstances, whatever they may be, are tools that God uses in our lives because they are all designed by Him. God places us in our circumstances in order to grow us, either to lead us further on the right path or to draw us back from the wrong path. In either case, we have responsibility. You can think of that word as a compound of two words, response and ability. We have the ability to respond. And how we respond will determine whether God's goal for us is achieved. So I ask you, where do you find yourself this morning? Are you in circumstances in which you are complaining to God? In which you are angry with Him? Because He has placed you where you are, whether situationally or relationally? If so, you're sinning in your response to God, and as a result will not become better, but only bitter. Or you may be in a situation in which you know God has placed you in order to correct the path that you're on. Your circumstance, you're convinced, has come because you are already rebelling against God. Not to keep you from it, because you're already in it. How we respond to our circumstances will determine how much and how well we grow in the Lord. Today, as we continue our series in the book of Jonah, we're going to see Jonah's response to God's dealings with him. In Jonah's case, he knows the reason for his plight. It's because he's running from God, refusing to do what God has told him to do, namely, go and preach to the hated and violent people of Nineveh. Now, we've seen that from a human standpoint, Jonah had very good reason to run in the direction opposite of Nineveh, since their cruelty to other peoples was legendary and frightening. But while that issue undoubtedly played a role in Jonah's refusal to answer God's call, We're told in the last chapter of the book, chapter 4, that the real reason that he doesn't want to go there is because he's afraid God will be merciful to them, and he doesn't want that because he despises them. Jonah himself has been privileged by God's grace in many ways that I detailed in the first message of this series. If you haven't been here for the first two of those messages, you can always hear our messages on our website so that you can catch up on that. Jonah we saw then, has been given great privileges by God in his grace, but Jonah does not want the same grace extended to others. And as a result of that, God has to teach him a lesson. And how Jonah responds will determine whether he's learned it. In chapter 1, Jonah has boarded a ship whose destination is 2,500 miles away from the city to which God had told him to go. God sends a violent storm, and the crew of the ship determined by lot, and we saw that that's not by accident, but by lot, that Jonah is the reason for the danger that that they're in, so they throw him overboard where he will surely die. 
But death is not what God has in mind for Jonah. God has lessons for Jonah to learn. He has ministry for Jonah to carry out. So at the very end of chapter 1, verse 17 says, The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that verse, the great fish, huge fish to swallow Jonah, that has dominated most people's understanding of and interest in the book of Jonah. I may disappoint you when I tell you I'm not going to spend any time talking about the great fish. The great fish is just that, a big fish that God appointed, God placed there, God created Jonah, God created the fish, God created the sea. He can do as he pleases with all of those, and he did in this scenario. The great fish is really just a bit player in this larger important story. The important thing then for us is to not get caught up in the huge fish idea. Because the important thing in this story is not how Jonah was restored, as we will see, to the right path, but rather that he was restored. And if we don't concentrate on that, then we'll miss the application to our own lives. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, says chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's read together. He prayed to the Lord his God, verse 2. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We want to see together what it was that moved Jonah from his rebellion to his repentance. And then apply that to our own lives today. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us now before your word. We thank you for preserving the story of your dealings with your servant so that we can see our lives in his and we can make application to our own lives so that we too can be restored, can repent as necessary and be useful in your service to bring you glory. Help us then to leave this place better equipped to do those very things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we have inserted for you in your program every week an outline for the message, and so I encourage you to take that out. As we look at two main points, and then a couple of sub-points in this Jonah chapter 2. The first is this, that God's discipline is for restoration. God disciplines, he puts us in difficult circumstances as his children, 
But he does that for the purpose, always a good purpose. In the case of having broken fellowship with him, rebelled against him, as Jonah has done, it's for the purpose of restoration. So that's why the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Do you see what's happening there? I went astray, but then I was afflicted by God. And now as a result of that, I obey your word. And that's God's design. His discipline is for the purpose of restoration. And make no mistake, as I say in the outline, it is God who initiates the process. God initiates it, but God often uses secondary causes in order to carry out his work in the lives of his people. In the case of Jonah, he used a fish and he appointed, verse 17 of chapter 1 tells us, he appointed this fish to be used as his instrument in the life of Jonah. God uses the actions of others to accomplish his own actions. We see that, for example, if you look back in chapter 1 in verse 15. Chapter 1 in verse 15 says this, They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Now the they there is the sailors with whom Jonah was on this ship. They took him, they threw him overboard. But then notice what Jonah says in chapter 2 in verse 3. Chapter 2 in verse 3, he says, You hurled me into the depths. So ultimately it is God who has placed Jonah where he is. And God used the sailors to accomplish God's purpose. You see this throughout Scripture. We see it very vividly in the life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching the first Christian sermon, after the Lord has ascended back to the Father, he's explaining the events that have happened just a few weeks before, Peter says this, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Notice, they did it, God planned it, God orchestrated it. Likewise, in Acts chapter 4, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, we could multiply passages in Scripture that show you that the actions of men are ultimately under the sovereign control of God. And God accomplishes His will through the actions of others most often. In the case of Jonah now, God's will is to bring him into corrective discipline. Jonah has rebelled. Jonah has sinned. Jonah's going in the wrong direction. God is intervening to bring him back. He uses the sailors. He uses the fish. He uses all of the circumstances that he initiates to make this happen. Now, that's corrective discipline. Just quickly, in Scripture, there's another type of discipline that occurs in our lives. Corrective discipline is when We, like Jonah, have rebelled. We're not doing something that God has commanded us to do. Or we are doing something God has forbid us to do. That's corrective discipline. But then there's something called formative discipline. That is, God is, the word discipline means training. And God is training his people. He is forming his people. 
And he is doing that with every circumstance that he allows into our lives. It's important for us to understand that God is the one who initiates both types. So that there's no relationship or circumstance that he does not design for your growth. So whether you're in a situation where you're being corrected by God or you're being trained by God in formative discipline, all of them are from God. So think about your stuff. Think about your circumstances. Think about the things you hate about your life. Think about maybe the people you hate in your life. And the question is, has God placed them around you and you in the middle of that? The Bible's answer is absolutely. And why has God done that? Either in order to correct something or to form something within you. Excuse me. Now, how do you know when it's formative versus corrective? You know it's corrective when you've been sinning. And if you're not obviously sinning, then the Lord is still at work in your life in order to grow you and to prepare you for the next things he has in store for you. So it's God who initiates this process of restoration. And secondly, he completes the process. He initiates it and he completes it. At this point now, God has gotten Jonah's attention. To use the current term, Jonah is now woke. (laughs) He's awakened to his condition and he's awakened to God's character. God has chased Jonah down and he's worked in his circumstances and his heart so that Jonah knows it. And God does the same kind of thing with us. We go astray. God's going to chase us down. Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 15. He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. And, as I said, God uses secondary causes in order to make this happen. Often he uses us in the lives of brothers and sisters to call someone back to the right path. That's why the book of James ends with these two verses. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over A multitude of sins. Many of you know that a number of times in Scripture, there's the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. You see that phrase, a multitude of sins, at the end of James chapter 5, but instead of the word love, it is turning a sinner from the error of their way. In other words, that's a form of love to do that. And God uses us in the process, secondary causes. One commentator said, When God's purposes involve afflictions and suffering of any kind, the knowledge that he is sovereignly overruling is the only thing that can preserve us from a craven fear or a sense of despair and bring us a measure of joyful and willing acceptance of our situation. Only when we recognize that God's aim is to make us like Christ and that he works all the events of our lives together for this purpose will we begin to rejoice in the good that is produced out of tribulation. 
The Bible, again, has this theme over and over again. Romans chapter 5, we glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering, these trials, produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Some of you know Johnny Erickson Tata's story of having been confined to a wheelchair as a result of a diving accident suffered when she was 17. It paralyzed her from the shoulders down. She's now almost 70. She said this, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you've been avoiding. He's pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering... But the choice is yours. She goes on to say, Today as I look back, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. And Jonah has come to this point where God is doing what is necessary and whatever is necessary in order to bring Jonah back. Jonah is now faced then with the living reality of the true and living holy God. Just like Job was at the end of Job's ordeal. You'll remember that Job, we went through that within the last two years. Job has 42 chapters. In the last five chapters of that marvelous book, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And in the very last chapter, here's what Job says. After all that he's experienced and now being in the presence, the reality of God, once again, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. God has accomplished His purpose. See, friends, we tend to be in our circumstances, mostly and sometimes only, concerned about the horizontal effects rather than the most important effect, which is vertical, your relationship with God. So when we look at our our circumstances... We're concerned about the effects that it's having on us, about other people, in the here and now. Those are all valid concerns, but they're not the most important concerns. The most important concern for Jonah ended up being, for Job ended up being, and God's design is for you and me ending up having God as the most important issue in all of the circumstances of our lives. Jonah's new attitude now reflects one who knows his troubles are the chastising hand of God. The Bible teaches that this is what God does with his children. He forms them into Christ's image. 
And sometimes that requires correcting them because of the path they're on. Proverbs chapter 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. In chapter 1, Jonah despised the discipline of the Lord. And in chapter 2, in his prayer, he recounts the resentment that he had. But that was all until he saw that this was from, from the hand of his father. He realized that what was really going on is what we read about in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 that quotes Proverbs chapter 3, but then goes on to say this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however... It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So Jonah was learning. And we need to learn what John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, said. He said, we are chastised so that we will be better. And Jonah was better And then he now had a number of things that become evident in his life that weren't there before. Let me give you three of those. These are not in your notes. So this is a bonus. This is beyond what you paid for. He was better in that, first of all, he now had compassion on others. He had compassion on others. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols... Turn away from God's love for them. Now, here's this guy in those circumstances thinking about God's love for pagan people. This is the very guy who despises those pagan people and as a result was going in the opposite direction. Recall that back in chapter 1 in verse 5, when the storm arose, it says in verse 5, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. The expositor's Bible commentary says that, quote, Jonah had a mental picture of these despairing sailors calling in vain on their gods while he, whom they thought had been lost, was awaiting the demonstration of his God's salvation. Old Testament scholar Leslie Allen, theologian Sinclair Ferguson, also understand verse 8 as Jonah thinking about the plight of those Phoenician sailors with whom he had started on his rebellious journey. In fact, Ferguson says this, Imagine Jonah being rudely awakened by the sea captain in chapter 1. Jonah turns over on his mat and he's thinking to himself, What is this Gentile dog? Who does this Gentile dog think he is? What we've discovered about the prophet's heart suggests that when he saw those pagan sailors calling upon their deaf gods, he must have despised them. Salvation comes from the Jews, he might well have thought, and salvation ends with the Jews. But in the depths of his own need, he had seen how compassionate God had been to him. And now, instead of sitting in judgment over these pagans, he now sat beside them in his mind under God's judgment. He began to have compassion on them. He began to see them as Christ would later see the multitudes. The Bible says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jonah confesses in verse 8 that those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah, who had formerly despised the ungodly heart, had now seen God's judgments on his own ungodly heart. 
And as a result, he learned compassion. Now that Jonah also felt despair and knew what it is to be far from God, the Ninevites must have appeared to him in a new light. They were no longer the heathen enemy, but they were immortal men. That is, people who will live forever somewhere. Immortal men under God's judgment and in need of hearing God's warning voice. Jesus had compassion. We're to have compassion. Jesus has compassion because he is gracious by nature. We have compassion on others because we've received that grace from him. He has it. We receive it. And in turn, we give it to others. So God's grace should have a humbling effect. And in turn, a caring effect. Care for the plight of others who are no worse than we are before God. To put it another way, when we understand our need for God's grace, we also understand we're no better than anyone else. And so we see them differently. This is why the Bible reminds us regularly of who we are. If you were to go back to the first part of your Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as God's people have been freed from bondage in Egypt and are ready to go into the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God reminds them, I did not choose you because you were a mighty nation, because you were more numerous than all the other nations. As a matter of fact, you were a very tiny nation. But I chose you because in my love, I set my grace upon you. In the New Testament, we're told this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things. (laughs) Just put that on your resume. Because that is your spiritual resume. That's my spiritual resume. That's all I brought to Christ. The only thing I can bring to him is my sin. God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, so that no one may boast before him or before anyone else. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friend, I ask you, does God's grace in your life make you humble or proud? It's a a contradiction in terms to be proud about grace. That's why Paul asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Therefore, then, why do you boast about it? We are simply stewards, Paul goes on to say there, of what God has entrusted to us. And yet, in a perverse way, We as sinful people can, because of the grace of God extended to us, actually become proud of ourselves in that grace. Do you measure yourself against others? Do you find yourself saying regularly, I can do it better than they do? Are you a critical person of others? Even if just in your heart, why can't they get their act together? Whether in life, whether in ministry... Friend, if you find yourself in that kind of mindset, unfavorably comparing others to yourself, whether inside or outside the church, then you can be sure that you have misunderstood God's grace. 
Jonah gained not only a new sense of compassion, but secondly, a sense of devotion to the Lord. A sense of devotion to the Lord. Verse 9, with shouts of grateful praise will I sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Now, we're not told when Jonah made these vows to God. It may have been in the belly of the fish itself or quite possibly going back years before when he first became aware of the call to be a prophet. Whatever the vows and whatever and whenever those occurred, he's now determined to fulfill them. Now, when I was a a boy and a teenager, it was popular to speak of making decisions for the Lord. At camps and youth events, the preachers would talk about making a decision, and the success of each endeavor was measured by the number of decisions made. So the number of young people raising a hand during the invitation at the end of the message or tossing a stick in the fire at the end of camp to signify a commitment made, these were actually counted and reported on to the church. And so at the end of a week of camp, 30 decisions were made, for example, for salvation or consecration. But one of the things I noticed over the years is that those, is that those decisions were often fleeting. That is, the person who made the decision meant it in that emotional moment. And I use that word carefully, emotion, because emotion was always part of the process. But when they got home from camp or back to school that Monday following their time in church, things reverted back to the way they were. So that's a decision, but that's a momentary decision. That's an emotional decision, but it's not what the Bible calls repentance. The evidence of a genuine vow is not in the words, but in whether actions follow. And so the Bible says godly sorrow brings repentance See what fruit this godly sorrow has produced in you. And that's what happens to Jonah. I'm going to fulfill my vows, but then he makes good on the fulfillment of those vows. We're going to see next week in chapter 3, in verse 3, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. So he turns in a 180 direction. God's grace to Jonah produced this new sense of compassion of devotion, and thirdly, a new awareness of God himself. Verse 9, the end of verse 9, salvation, Jonah says, comes from the Lord. Now, Jonah knew that intellectually, and in some way in the past, he had experienced God's work in his life. That's why he was a prophet. He had grown up, as we saw in the first message in this series, during the period of the school of the prophets, during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha's very name meant God is Savior. But now what he knew to be true in his mind was being driven into his heart. God is a saving God. And if God can deliver Jonah as he has done in this episode in Jonah's life, then perhaps there is salvation for the Ninevites also. So Jonah has gone... In the words of the title of this series, from simply saying grace or knowing about grace or mouthing grace to true saving grace. God's discipline is for that. It's for restoration. And I say in your outline, God's discipline results in repentance. 
It results then in genuine repentance. The deeper work of God for Jonah was not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of Jonah himself. The deeper work of God in this episode was not in the realm of nature, but rather in the realm of grace. The restoration to fellowship with God that Jonah experienced had to begin in the very areas where his rebellion occurred. You see, that's what repentance is. In the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, repentance is seen in a word that means to return, to go back along the path from which you came. In the New Testament, we have an illustration of this in the story of the prodigal son making his way back home along the very path on which he left for the far country. So for Jonah to return from where he left meant he had to return to the two things he had abandoned in the first place. You may recall in the message two weeks ago that we saw that there were these two areas that he, to which he needed now to return. The first is a return to God's presence. We saw in the last message that Jonah fled not just from Nineveh, but from the, but from the Lord himself. We saw that there's really actually no way to be outside the very presence of God, since God is omnipresent, he's everywhere present. But we can indeed, as Jonah did, run from the intimacy of the presence of God so that we ignore it or suppress it or despise it because it reminds us of our sin when we're in disobedience. And that's what Jonah was doing, trying to forget about God. He's trying to forget about God, but thanks be to God that in his grace, he never forgets about us. So in the midst of this discipline from God upon Jonah, he sees it as... It is, in fact, God's grace to him, drawing him back to himself. And, in fact, it works. Because chapter 2 opens with Jonah praying to the Lord. From inside the fish, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. That's God's aim in all that he brings into our lives. That we become close to him or closer to him as the case may be. In Jonah's case, he was not close at all in these moments. But God did what was necessary to bring him back to desiring and reveling in God's presence. Jonah returned. Jonah repented to the presence of God. And he returned to God's word. The very first, and this is what we saw two weeks ago, that he had rejected God's word. And now he has to return to that. The very first verses of the book of Jonah tell us he rejected God's word. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. He rejected God's presence because he rejected God's word. What's interesting about Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is that that prayer is laced with allusions to the book of Psalms. Many commentators have pointed out that if you simply had Jonah chapter 2 read to you without being told what book of the Bible it is, you might think you were hearing the book of Psalms. He doesn't quote directly any particular psalm, but rather he rehearses themes found throughout the psalms. 
A study of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 shows allusions or references to Psalms 3, 5, 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and 120. One preacher has said, The whole perspective of the Psalms on God and man, life and death, despair and hope, fear and faith, is flowing out through Jonah's heart and mouth. So how is it happening that Jonah suddenly becomes an oracle of psalmody while in the belly of this great fish? The only answer that can be is that he has been raised and nurtured in the Psalms. He had recited and sung the Psalms all his life. The songs were inside him because of his life among God's people. So now brought to this terrible extremity beneath the waves and inside the great fish, when Jonah is moved to pray, the vocabulary and faith of the Psalms find expression in his prayer. That is, Jonah has a reservoir of truth from which to draw in his time of trial. As you've heard me say many times, friends, the best time to prepare for a trial is before you get in it. And the best preparation for whatever comes our way, whether something we've inflicted on ourselves or something imposed on us due to no fault of our own, the best preparation for both is for us to be immersed in the truth of the Word of God. Dr. Richard Phillips says this, It's only when the influence of God's Word is felt again that Jonah-like believers, people like us, are restored to God in repentance. It's the influence of God's word that turns our hearts back to God in prayer instead of away from God in our own figurative ships that are bound for Tarshish. Therefore, both in the individual believer's experience and in the life of the church, it's always true, as the word of God says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The way to experience God's grace is to turn to God's word. Peter spoke this way of a sinner's conversion to saving faith. You have been born through the living and enduring word of God. But then Jesus spoke this way of God's grace for the growth and the restoration of those who are already saved. Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So whether we're being humbled before God for the first time, Or we've come for a return visit to the convicting darkness of the fish's belly, as it were. The grace of God that we need is found and experienced through the Word of God. Now, we never, I never, want to simply lay these things out to you and then leave you bereft of a way to carry them out. If the Word of God is that important, then we as leaders in the church have a responsibility to give you avenues to learn the Word of God. But guess what? We've done that. And so I encourage you, I urge you, as we begin our midweek program again, September the 18th, we're offering three classes for you to take. Those are listed for you in the program. And they're all designed to teach you the Word of God. If you've never taken our foundational class, Master Plan for Life, then that's the class for you. If you have, we've got the other classes for you to choose from. We offer another foundational class that we do every other year, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. We offer you the Growth Partners Ministry. That's a one-on-one ministry that has you going through sections of Scripture, memorizing passages of Scripture with a partner. 
In your connection card, you can check off. I want to know more about that growth partner ministry. Turn it in and we'll get with you. But avail yourselves, whatever you do, of those opportunities. Almost done. Friends, God will go to any lengths to bring us into conformity with his will. No matter what the price may be, either to him or to us. That's at the same time both wonderful and daunting. But this is the nature of our God. He loves us, but he will do what's necessary in our lives to bring about good in us and through us. There's a scene in one of the Chronicles of Narnia trilogy where some young people have arrived accidentally in Narnia. It's a land which is cursed by the white witch so that it is, quote, always winter but never Christmas. But they hear of the promised savior king of the land named Aslan. They ask one of the inhabitants of Narnia about Aslan, and they learn that Aslan is a lion. Oh, one of the children says, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I'd be very nervous to meet a lion. The answer was, if anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. The child says, then he isn't safe? And the answer was, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's God. Not safe. He will do what's necessary, and he can do all that's necessary. But he is always good. And Jonah found something similar. Life could never be safe as a servant of God, and certainly not as a rebellious servant of God. But he knew the Psalms which say good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. So Jonah would be able to confess now, after all of this, along with yet another psalmist, I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Here's your take-home truth. God's discipline is merciful designed to bring us back to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the message that is the life of your servant Jonah. Lord, I see myself in Jonah. We are people, if we are honest, see ourselves in his story. The hymn writer saw it when he wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We thank you, Lord, that though we are often faithless, you are always faithful. We thank you for the security that we have in that because, Lord, we know that we are so frail and weak and easily distracted that next week, next month, we don't know where we'll be. But we know you will always come after us. We know you will do what's necessary to bring us back. And we know that you do all of these things for our good and for your glory. So we thank you for saving us. And we thank you for continually delivering us often from our very selves. We praise you and we bring glory to you for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.